Good evening, everyone. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And it gives me huge pleasure to welcome all of you this evening to the Amartya Sen Lecture Series, which the LSE has hosted for many years. Tonight's lecture is going to be given by Professor Tim Besley, who is a professor at the LSE and also president of the Econometric Society and a fellow of the British Academy. And Tim will talk about state effectiveness and what it means and how Amartya Sen's work informs how states can address the policy challenges of our time. But tonight is a very special night for another reason. Because tonight we are announcing the creation of a chair at the London School of Economics in honor of Amartya Sen. The creation of the Amartya Sen chair in inequality studies is thanks to the generosity of the Atlantic Foundation. And I wanted to recognize the CEO and President Chris Oxley who is here this evening uh, with his colleagues from Atlantic Foundation. The chair will also serve as the director of the International Institute for Inequalities, which is housed here by the LSE and is supported by the Atlantic Foundation to do research and train generations of fellows committed to addressing inequality around the world. Now, there are many reasons why this is a very fitting tribute. There are the obvious ones, like Amartya Sen won the Nobel Prize in Economics for his contribution to welfare economics. His books have been translated into more than 30 languages. He's been the president of the Econometric Society, the American Economic Association, the Indian Economic Association, and the International Economic Association. He has changed the field of economics in so many ways. Our understanding of famines, social justice, economic theory, social choice, welfare economics, inequality, and on and on and on. For us at the LSE, the main reason is he was a professor here from 1971 to 1977, and he has told me that those years were ones in which which were some of the most productive in his professional life, and he flourished in the intellectual environment of the LSE. And that relationship and connection to the LSE has persevered. I am told that his wife often says that when Amartya has to go from A to B, he always does it via the LSE. <laughs> he has many friends, students, and admirers in this place, and it is so appropriate that there will be a permanent chair at the LSE in his honor. For me personally, it's especially uh, moving because I was a PhD student in Oxford, which was the last year that he was teaching in Oxford. And we were all panicked that he was leaving. And I attended every single one of his lectures in Oxford <laughs> before he left because I thought that was going to be my last chance to hear from the great man, never imagining that we, I would be here this evening. So with that, let me now turn to Tim Besley, who will give tonight's lecture. Tim. So it is a, a true honor and privilege to be giving uh, this year's Amartya Sen lecture. Uh, I've known Amartya for more than 30 years. In fact, I was thinking as I was coming over here, it's actually almost 40 years. And throughout this time, 
Uh, his ideas and interests have shaped my own in countless ways, including those that I'll discuss in the standard part of my lecture today. Uh, it's wonderful to see so many uh, students in the audience uh, who's someone who regards one of the joys of academic life being engagement with students. I believe that people are at their most impressionable when they're young, and what we're exposed to by way of thinking in those formative years become the very essence of who we are and are carried forward as the unconscious thoughts that drive us. And I mention this because that was true in my case with Amacha. Uh, I, too, was privileged to attend his undergraduate lectures uh, at Oxford, which were often attended by graduate students, um, uh, which without question convinced me that I wanted to become an economist. Uh, and it was Amartya, above all, I think, who has inspired me on that path. His lectures were not so much A to Z uh, as A to A, where the two A's in question were Aristotle and Arrow. Uh, and from then on, I gorged myself on a diet of Amartya's writings, and uh, he became my supervisor uh, during the MPhil in Oxford. Uh, and the problem with that is I can't help shaking the feeling this evening that he's going to grade me on my performance. Um, uh, after that, we became colleagues of sorts when I was elected to a junior fellowship at All Souls, where Amartya was drum and professor of political economy, and that gave me the opportunity to behave as a young Turk, sometimes trying the patience of even a self-proclaimed argumentative Indian, uh, <laughs> although that reinforced my taste for such arguments to a point where I can gladly count a number of argumentative Bengalis among my friends, and I've written papers with more than one of them. Um, Shortly after, I moved to my first job at Princeton, where I was asked to review Amartya's book with Jean Dres on hunger and public action. And, and proving the old adage that youth is wasted on the young, uh, I read it without properly appreciating its importance at the time. Their main argument was that the state and its effectiveness lies at the heart of the practical promotion of human capability. And it thereby tied the powerful moral philosophical ideas in Amartya Sen's work with the practical issues of making the world a better place. And it bears mention that Amartya's remarkable co-author, Jean Dres, has committed his life to that end. Um, taking Amartya's enormous range of writings together, the fact he's able to bring normative ideas carefully argued for to practical applications, I think, needs to be fully appreciated. Now, around the same time when I was a freshly minted assistant professor, uh, I had an encounter with a senior colleague at LSE, uh, one who happens also to be Indian and also became a lifelong friend. And when he first met me, he asked me what my intellectual interests were. And I proudly listed among them economic development. Uh, but he remarked that he too had been interested in economic development, um, but had decided that the subject was no longer a fruitful one for economists uh, because he concluded that the central problems of development were political rather than economic. Uh, for a time, I found that comment dispiriting, uh, but I've come since to view it as a defining moment for my career since I've spent the last 25 years trying to bring economics and politics back together as a way of, uh, uh, as part of the resurgent field of political economy. And that's what I'm going to talk about in the lecture this evening. Um, so the slides should appear, I hope, on the screen for that lecture. Someone able to do that? Just press right. Thank you very much. So the title of my lecture, <laughs> see, <laughs> he's already graded me, I can tell. Um, okay, here we go. Um, so the title of my lecture this evening is Foundations of Effective States. Uh, and uh, it, it draws on a number of aspects of Amartya's uh, work. I put four of my favorite books. I'm sure if you put yours up, you'd have uh, um, others, Development as Freedom, Collective Choice, and Social Welfare, 
the idea of justice and hunger and public action that I mentioned earlier. Um, I'm going to talk very briefly a little more about Amartya and his contributions and how they link to the theme of the lecture. Then I'm going to talk about effective states and elements of political economy. And then I'm going to bring it back to some contemporary concrete challenges that we face and to think about how the ideas I introduced earlier are, are germane to those. Um, I'm going to link to a range of themes in Amartya's work, um, particularly around the foundations of public action. Um, the nature of decision-making processes is, of course, central to the work on social choice. His work on motivation and agency, which I'll come back to later. His analysis of what it takes to create the basis for leading fulfilled lives. And all of it uh, rooted in an appreciation of the breadth of human experience. Many economists either study um, success or failure, but rarely do they try and understand the full range of experience and to, to learn from it uh, 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 convincingly. All of these are central to the study of political economy. But I'm going to start with a puzzle, which I'll come back to at the end, uh, and that's why the work in political economy we've seen happen in the last 25 years wasn't done in the first instance by Amartya, because he looked so well-placed to start this work earlier, and I'm going to come back to that as we, as we go. Now, what do I mean by effective states? Well, there's a number of dimensions to what I mean by state effectiveness, but I like to decompose them down into three basic categories. Um, the first is fiscal capacity, the capacity of a state to raise revenue to support the ambitions of the state and to develop broad-based taxes to achieve those ambitions. Uh, and, and in a moment, I'll, I'll give you a concrete example of, 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 of what we're dealing with when we try and understand that. Um, the second is legal capacity, how to establish the rule of law, how to regulate, and how to promote competition. And the third is collective capacity, how to deliver public services and to provide social insurance. These are not exhaustive lists of the kinds of things I have in mind, but it gives you a flavor of the many different dimensions lying behind this concept of state effectiveness. And we simply can't presume in many of the, in the sort of what I would call the pre-political economy era of economics, we tended to start, to my taste, far too late in the analysis, presuming the state had the capacity to raise revenue, presuming that the state could be effective in establishing the rule of law, and presuming the state, if it chose, could spend on public goods and services. But that's far too late a point to enter the story, and I think is a deeply ahistorical perspective on these issues, which I'm going to try and uh, counter tonight. Here's an example uh, from a picture that I've probably shown some people before and have shown others far too often. But here's the history for a random, rather somewhat random set of 18 countries for which there's consistent data of what happened to the fiscal state over the 20th century. And you won't be surprised in some ways to see this, that if you go back to the turn of the 20th century, um, the, the typical uh, tax take in GDP was around 8% of GDP in, this, in these states. Indeed, and, and what's surprising about that is Joseph Schumpeter wrote a famous essay in the early part of the 20th century saying that these, even these levels of taxation were questionably high and it would be impossible for the state to maintain such high levels of revenue. What we saw through the 20th century through a series of developments which I'll only allude to in my talk is the building of fiscal capacity to a point where, for example, uh, income taxes are introduced in the early part of the century and they become, over the century, doing uh, the, the tax base that does the lion's share of tax raising. So by the end of the 20th century in the sample of countries, 
Personal income taxes raise about half of the revenue of government, rising from around 2% in the beginning of the century. There have been really, I'm using this to illustrate one point only, really, that, that there have been these fundamental changes in the nature of states. I could have shown it in a variety of dimensions. I'm just showing it for taxation here. But if I'd looked at any of those dimensions I mentioned to you earlier, whether it's the regulatory capacity of the state or the fiscal capacity of the state or the collective capacity of the state, a similar story would emerge. Uh, and, and this is something we really need to think about and understand because during the 20th century we made, I think, a huge amount of human progress, not linearly, as I'll show you in a minute, but we made a lot of progress. That said, we have to remind ourselves that many people live in states that are not affected by this standard. They states that cannot raise deliver, um, revenue and deliver basic services to their citizens, cannot guarantee personal safety, cannot challenge the power of large corporations, and are unable to combat discrimination and injustice. Um, those of us who uh, have been born and brought up in what are now the effective states of the world can very often forget that there are many parts of the world for which we simply can't take these functions of the state for granted, and I'll return to that very much at the end. But the key thing I want to introduce tonight and to talk about for the remainder of my, uh, of, of my lecture is um, where effective states come from and different views about that, um, because I think that's the principal thing we need to understand. If you take as a premise, which I think is a reasonable premise, that this has only emerged in certain parts of the world, we really need to understand why it emerged in some places and not in others. Now, I'm drawn to political economy. I mean, one of the reasons I got interested in these issues is I think it would be very hard to get into any credible answer of the question I posed about where effective states come from without doing that through an investigation in political economy. Um, and there's a kind of stylized view that's emerged, which I'm actually going to question through the lecture, but at the moment I'll just put it on the table, that effective states are essentially built on institutional constraints. And I'll be clear about what I mean by that as I go. And that's a perfectly reasonable hypothesis for the last 200 years. Because um, we have seen dramatic changes in political institutions. Um, increased constraints on executive power through effective parliamentary oversight, the creation of independent judiciaries, strengthening of civil society, and the creation of free media. All of these things are relatively recent developments, um, by which I mean the last 200 years. And the other aspect of this is greater openness in contests for power, the decline of hereditary governance, and the increased use of competitive elections to decide who is to make uh, decisions. So these have been dramatic changes over a period of time. Um, although I, am, I, 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 I do hasten to say that when I, when I was a child, I had an unnatural f fascination with the, the, these things which you could do where you describe all of the history of the world as, as if it happened in a single day. And the thing I used to be fascinated by is that human, if, if we think of all of the world having happened as a day, uh, beginning at midnight and going on, then human beings arrived about 77 seconds before midnight. So we've been on the planet for about 77, 11, 11 40, 11.58 and 43 seconds is the estimate relative to the length of the <laughs> If you ask yourself the question, though, how long have we had any institutions approximating, approximating modern democratic institutions on that scale, the answer is 0 0.09 seconds um, relative. So they are a tiny fraction of all of human history. So you should bear in mind we're dealing with a phenomenon that is really very recent by any uh, stretch of the imagination, even relative to human history. 
Here's a sort of a, a simple picture to illustrate some of the core ideas. It comes from a database that those of us who study this thing use a lot, which is the Polity 4 database. It's used by political scientists. The nice thing about the data from the point of view of using it as a researcher is it covers all independent states over about 220 years of political history. And what it does is to assign scores to those states according to the development of certain kinds of institutions. And this is, this is showing, I've disaggregated this into two kinds of institutions. The top line is something they call openness. For openness, just read how competitive are, how competitively contested are um, our government positions within that country. Are they, uh, the most closed system would be hereditary monarchy in which there was no openness at all in political institutions. And what you can see is if you start in 1800, around 10% of countries in the Polity 4 sample had representative institutions that could be described as open, and that's gone up to almost 80% over that 200-year period. So there has been very significant advance in the openness measure. Now, this measure here, the one below, is one I'm much more interested in because I think it's far more important. Um, uh, and that's a measure of how constrained is the use of executive authority within a country. And that's going to measure things like how independent is the judiciary, how strongly does the parliament create oversight of what the, uh, what the executive does. And the progress on that is still real, but that's been much slower than progress on creating open contests for power. Um, the other thing I'll draw your eye to, because it is relevant to something I'm going to talk about later, is that we... we while there has been progress through most of the historical period of 200 years, there was a severe democratic recession, if you like, in both dimensions in the middle of the 20th century in the period leading up to the Second World War. Um, so that it's not that the human history has in any sense been one of continuous progress, um, but it's been broadly a direction of change. So what's the theoretical foundations for what's going on here? What do people think about when they try to explain this? Well, they put at the heart, and this is something for those of you who are fans of, say, the work of Darren Asimoglu and Jim Robinson, I hasten to say both LSE graduates, um, who, um, uh, who've written a famous book called Why, Nation, Why Nations Fail, where they put at the center of this story um, the, a role for institutional cohesiveness, um, that essentially what creates effective states is finding ways that political institutions can bring people together to use state power for common purposes. And the key trick is to know how to do that. Of course, to say that is not to do it. Um, and what uh, I've argued in my work with, with Torsten Persson, on which some of the, well, quite a lot of the ideas I'm developing today are based, is that this creates a safe space, if you like, for the accumulation of state capacities. So once you've been able to get the state focused essentially on common interests rather than the private interests of the people who run the state, you can create capacities for that state in the knowledge that whatever capacities you, cre you create will be used for common interests and not used for the selective purposes of a small elite. So, what, so, so this, this argument says effective states emerge precisely because we can constrain states appropriately to use the powers that we give them. So there's a sort of answer here to the paradox of power. You precisely want to give states power because you know they're constrained in the way they use it. They become more powerful precisely because of that. And so here's a sort of basic theoretical foundation that summarizes what most of the political economy literature has been about for the last 25 years, explaining in different ways these different arrows and how it all works, both from a theoretical and empirical point of view. Um, and if you take the kind of standard approach that people have taken here, it really all goes back to Hume. 
Um, it goes back even to this quote from Hume, which I have up here, um, which I, is, is, is a wonderful statement, uh, which I think characterizes very much the views of those who've been trying to develop this literature. And it says the following. Political writers have established it as a maxim that in contriving any system of government and fixing the several checks and controls of the Constitution, every man ought to be supposed a knave. It's an occasion on which women probably don't want to be supposed a knave. And so saying man here probably resonates rather more positively. Um, uh, and to have no other end in all his actions than private interest. By this interest we must govern him, and by means of it make him, notwithstanding his insatiable avarice and ambition, cooperate to public good. Um, so Hume's pretty clear-cut that the story of institutional development is curbing self-interest, that that's the threat, and it's the threat in markets and it's the threat in states. And unless we can find a way of curbing self-interest, we can't govern effectively. So that's a kind of... A view, I would say, there's been the dominant view in the political economy literature that's developed in the last quarter century. But we build humanly devised constraints to curb self-interest. Now, Amarcha's work uh, is very important in what I'm going to say next. This was an essay that I read by Amarcha when I was an undergraduate with a wonderful title, Rational Fools, A Critique of the Behavioral Foundations of Economic Theory. Uh, and he, do, he actually... He only goes back to Edgeworth, so I've trumped you that much. I'm going back to Hume. Um, uh, but he, he makes essentially the same point. He says in Mathematical Psychics, published in 1881, Edgeworth asserted that the first principle of economics is that every Asian is actuated by only self-interest. Um, so exactly a restatement of the Humean proposition, uh, although he had it more in mind in the context of pure economics, not in the context of politics. And what Amartya does in this rather wonderful essay is to deconstruct and to critique this very narrow vision of what human motivation is all about and therefore to characterize what economists think are rational people as, in fact, rational fools. Um, so uh, by the end of it, um, he has effectively critiqued the foundations of much of economics. Now, um, where does that relate to my central theme? Well, for those of you who are not economists, you might have been asking yourself, where are the norms? Where are the values? Where are the other things that we think we have to appeal to to, to have a, a, a rich view of what's been going on in human history? Um, because almost no other social science, I think, would tell a story of where effective states come from, which was not resting on the importance of changing people's norms of behavior, particularly the elite, the people who are going to do the governing, and that of the citizens who are going to have to pull their weight too. So citizens have to, have to comply with the demands of the state, um, and, uh, and uh, the state itself have to subscribe to liberal values, because that's what we're creating, are liberal institutions that respect rights, and uh, to respect the institutions of the state. And this account of what's gone on in building effective states has very little to do with constraining rational egoists. It has to do with changing us as people and our sense of obligation and our commitment as citizens to participating in effective states. So it's a really rather different account of uh, what makes states effective. And one of the core ideas here is the importance of reciprocity as a value, that citizens and state have to behave in a reciprocally positive way, that citizens have obligations, but so, so do states. And the metaphor here, which is, again, a familiar metaphor for those of you who study political philosophy, is the idea of forging an effective social contract. Now, you might think this is a very natural way to think, but it has not been the way that the 
political economy literature to date has been thinking. Although in my, uh, in my presidential address to the Econometric Society, I developed these ideas, uh, and I'm very happy to send somebody a copy if they, they would like, and try to argue that, in fact, creating norms and values is just as much part of economics as the rational and self-interest part would be of economics. So what richer theoretical foundations can you get out of that for the idea of effective states? Well, institutional cohesiveness is still important um, because state power used for a common interest encourages exactly the norms and values that we need. So it's not a separate view of what drives effective states. It's a complementary view of what drives effective states. That unless you can provide citizens with the reassurance of the reciprocal relationship between them and the state, which you do through institutional cohesiveness, you can't build those norms and values. So it's not a separate view, it's a complementary view. And how we expand state capacity is by encouraging certain norms of reciprocity by which the state and the citizens interact. So it's much more consistent with throwing off the shackles of the rational fool's view that Amartya had so powerfully critiqued. Um, but we're still left with a puzzle. So if, if the picture of history I've described to you applies, it can't apply everywhere. And so we need to understand why it doesn't apply everywhere. Um, the past two centuries have been an exceptional period. I've tried to convince you of that in human history and have created very different kinds of states than existed before that. They're more inclusive, they're more accountable, and they're better at promoting growth and well-being. So these are more effective states, and I think in, in, in perfectly credible and reasonable ways of defining an effective state. But there are many places in the world where this has not happened, uh, and where a reversal, I would argue, is a real possibility, and I'll come back to that in a minute. We, I, I already pointed to you that human history has been far from linear, uh, and I think that should remind us that these things are not just to be taken for granted. They are things that are, that, that, that are part of ongoing dynamic processes, and there's no reason to believe that, that they couldn't be reversed in future. Indeed, the thrust of a lot of the literature on this has been the importance of history dependence as a force in shaping what makes states effective. Um, so one of the forces that provides headwinds for creating effective states is inherited forms of polarization and inequality that can make it very difficult for, cit for citizens to get together and to develop a common view or a common purpose that I've argued is right at the heart of the uh, creating an effective state. And geography can matter too. Um, one of the facts you'll be very familiar with is that natural resource uh, uh, discoveries tend to be a curse in the context of trying to build effective states. Many countries that have experienced resource booms uh, often gives way to a kind of winner-takes-all politics that goes against this idea that I've been trying to push that we need to build common and effective interests. So this is a danger uh, that, that, that I'll talk about in, in, in a moment, but geography can matter too. And another aspect of geography that can matter is, um, is the neighborhood you live in. Um, one thing that's not too surprising when you look at the data is the clustering, the geographical clustering of effective states. So having neighbors who reinforce rather than um, uh, um, provide headwinds for creating effective states is important too. Perhaps something we should think about in a time of Brexit. Um, state fragility. Um, so I, want, I don't want to end entirely on a, on a down note, but I'm going to try and lift you up right at the end, and then you'll have a marcha to... Uh, to, uh, to give some uh, response. Um, 
I don't have to, I said this earlier, but around a billion people in the world live in fragile states, states that are unable to deliver any of the basic functions on a sustained basis that make human life flourish. And uh, uh, Paul Collier, uh, who was also one of my uh, uh, um, tutors at Oxford, uh, wrote this very uh, influential book called The Bottom Billion. And Paul is currently writing a retrospective on The Bottom Billion and saying almost 20 years later, uh, what has changed? And the sad truth of it is very little. Um, There are some places that have moved beyond being in this bottom billion group, but so many are still there even 20 years on. Um, So this looks like something where human progress has been quite limited. And uh, about two years ago, um, Paul and I got together, Paul's at Oxford and and I'm at LSE, through the International Growth Center based here, and and, and, uh, formed a, a, a a commission on state fragility, growth, and development to look at these issues, and Manoush served on that committee. Even before you were at LSE, you served on the commission, commission, uh, but then joined up when she was uh, director of LSE. And David Cameron uh, came and and chaired the commission uh, after he left office. Uh, And the the report is available for those of you who'd like to read it. But a number of things came out of that commission, I think um, not least uh, a somewhat dismal record of the international community in responding effectively to problems of state fragility. And there are a number of policy errors, really blatant policy errors, that I think come out of not understanding some of the basic elements I've been talking about this evening. For one thing, and I think this is a fault of economists in general, far too much focus on belief in technocratic solutions, um, rather than thinking in terms of how the political economy plays out, how do political and economic incentives co-evolve and work together. So many people gave advice that was, or give advice in relation to fragile states that are almost detached from the political realities. So we've been engaged recently with the IMF who do a lot of work in fragile states. And finally, the IMF is trying to develop distinctive strategies in environments of state fragility, which are different from the ones they might apply in France or the Netherlands or Britain. Um, we have only recently have the IMF came, come to realize that it's really essential for them to be distinctive in the way they engage. The same is true of the World Bank. The World Bank is grappling with this issue, trying to figure out what are the distinctive approaches they need, but they haven't really got there yet. And I, we hope that our, our report would at least contribute to that. And I think it has. It's pushed the debate forward. So what are some of the policy areas, errors that, um, that, that come out of this? The sort of worst error that we kept coming back to is imagining Denmark. Uh, What do I mean by that? Denmark is always held up as an example of a very successful and effective state based on very cohesive norms and values and democratic institutions. So what do you do when you march into a fragile state like the Yemen? Um, You basically say, you've got to be more like Denmark um, because Denmark's a very successful state and you're a less successful state. And so you immediately start using standardized templates of engagement that say, basically, if you were just a bit more like Denmark, you'd really improve. And then you come up with a laundry list, and it's going to be a very long list in these environments of how you can be like Denmark, to a point where the whole political process is overwhelmed with uh, requirements that they couldn't possibly fulfill given the current state capacities in those situations. So it shows a really poor uh, understanding of the institutional norm dynamics. A really salient example of this, which we, again, come back to repeatedly in our discussion of fragile states, is the rush to elections. So this is a classic example. What makes for an effective state? Well, effective states have elections, so you better hold elections because elections are part of what effective states do. 
Well, it turns out, in the wrong environment, elections are deeply polarizing things to do. That doesn't mean you don't run elections. It means you prepare for running elections properly, which means building those cohesive bargains between the elites to a point where you can have a successful resolution of something at the end of the electoral process. And in so many countries, elections have led to more conflict, more polarization uh, than you began with. So a very smart move is the example of the Lebanon, which came out of a civil war and has rules which basically transcend the election outcome. There are certain rules of who's represented in particular bodies that are not determined exclusively by the election outcome. They are deliberately designed to gain maximal representation in the governance process so that nobody feels excluded by losing an election. But if you look at the international community's record, whether it's in Afghanistan or Libya or Iraq, it's been a pretty dismal record of just running elections without preparing the ground for that. Um, so that's a classic example, I think, of a poorly devised strategy based on a, a, a really naive view about how institutions work. And another one is to work around states. If states are failing, you might think the natural thing to do is to give up on the state and organize alternatives to the state. But then you undermine the state, a nascent state in its own, in its own right. And, and, and again, the, the international community is has been very poor at trying to think how to build state capacity rather than working around it. And that's perfectly understandable in some contexts, particularly emergency contexts, where you want to get aid to, to, to particularly disadvantaged citizens. But that engagement tends to not be a sustained engagement of the kind that, um, uh, uh, um, that, that allows you to build effective states on the back of that engagement. It often is a substitute for building effective states. And I think more generally, way too little attention uh, to the role of building norms and values as a way of getting sustained solutions to the kinds of conflicts which are often at the heart of state effectiveness. Um, so I think the problems of state fragility, um, they're not resolved by thinking through political economy, although many of the errors, I think, that have been um, committed in the past are at least exposed by thinking in that way. Uh, and, and I think that the kinds of toolkit that has emerged in political economy is, has helped to think through um, why the kinds of strategies that we're trying now are not working. The second uh, uh, and, and final example I'll take uh, is, is the rise currently of populist nationalism around the world, particularly in established democracies. And I'll take the, most ex the case that shocks me most here, since uh, um, uh, I work mainly with a Swedish co-author, Torsten Persson, and, uh, and therefore I'm deeply shocked when my vision of Sweden is, uh, is, is disturbed by the fact that the Sweden Democrats, which is a right nationalist party, is now polling around 20% of the vote. So we're not talking about countries that don't have long traditions of inclusive politics, far from it. This is happening in places which have deeply developed um, uh, democratic traditions. And I would argue there's a number of things that lie behind this related to the themes in my lecture. Um, the growing detachment, though, of political elites. So Torsten has this wonderful paper with a number of co-authors where they've looked at not who the voters are for the Sweden Democrats, but who are the candidates? Who are the people standing to represent those voters? And do they look different from the candidates who are standing to represent <coughs> conventional parties? And the answer is there's a world of difference. What people want are people like them. So the candidates are a totally new political class representing those nationalist uh, voters. And what they're, what they're reacting against is their perception that there's a political elite that's just not like them and doesn't share their values. And I don't think anyone has really thought of the implications of that 
Now, given what's going on, even as we speak in the House of Commons, whether this will lead to a wholesale revolution in our political elite, I have no idea. But I think it's a deep, it's a serious issue when people no longer perceive that the people they send to represent them are sharing in, in, in their values any longer, at least sufficiently many people. Of course, there will be always those who, uh, who are part of the political establishment who do see that. But I think it's a very serious issue, and it's increasing polarization. It's putting pressure on cohesive institutions. We're seeing things going on in some countries that were unimaginable 10 or 15 years ago, changing political institutions to respond to the threats that are emerging from the nationalist uh, 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 and populist. And I think on the back of that, coming back to my earlier theme, this will lead to the unraveling of norms of inclusivity on which we built our effective states. And I feel very frustrated because I don't think many political elites, and one can't speak for everybody, there are more uh, enlightened people out there, of course, really understand the way these these processes are developing in real time as a kind of dynamic emerging phenomenon. Uh, and the, the danger is that they are just saying, we're right, we, are, we have the liberal values, you're wrong, you, you have the illiberal values, so you better listen to us because we know better than you do, uh, and uh, we're not going to embrace what you're doing because we don't like the look of that. Now, of course, that's a very simplistic uh, characterization of what's going on, but it's a very worrying characterization. And what we need, I think, is a much more hard-edged defense of liberal values uh, rooted in an understanding of political economy. And one, so I gave a little presentation. I have a paper with Torsten, where, which I present, present a few times here. And, uh, and it's about, you know, in, in a kind of formal framework, how these things are evolving. Um, and it, part of the paper is we're trying to explain why it is that right nationalist parties are growing in strength and, and being developed in a number of countries. Um, but someone asked a question when I presented it. Um, but why aren't the liberals mobilizing in the same way? Where are their new political forms of organization that's standing up to all of this? And the answer is, well, either they believe they just have a monopoly through traditional political organization and they control political organization, but there's very little evidence of political mobilization on the other side. And I think that tells you a lot about what's going on, that political mobilization is almost entirely being developed on the side of the disaffected. Okay, so, so what have I argued here? I'm going to return to Amarcha's uh, themes in a moment. I've argued that there's grounds for optimism, that there are elements of political economy that can allow us to understand uh, the creation and maintenance of effective states. I've argued that the standard economic view doesn't cut it, and that Amarcha got that right all those years ago when he critiqued economists as too obsessed with rational fools, and that we need an, an approach that embraces norms and values and other richer uh, sources of human motivation. But it's also important that that's not static. That's not fixed in stone. That's something that happens in real time and it can change. And we shouldn't pretend that once you've established a liberal tradition, that liberal tradition is so robust it can't change or fall back. Um, And the bottom line is that the elements of political economy I think we have Whether we apply them right, that's another challenge altogether, but I think we have a window on these contemporary challenges which I regard as insightful and useful. So finally, returning to the themes in Amarcha's work, um, the central theme of this lecture is the importance of effective public action as a contributor to well-being. That means understanding decision-making processes, something that's always been at the heart of Amarcha's work. Uh, Understanding motivation and agency, what it is, Uh, to uh, act in the public interest and what motivates that. 
and also what it means to create the basis for people to lead fulfilled lives and to provide a framework in which they can do that. And all of these, I would argue, are central to what we study now in political economy. So Amartya really has, when I take stock of that, been an inspirational figure in the project that I've outlined this evening. Um, but I return to my first question. Why was Amartya not also someone, and he may tell me he has, uh, in fact, engaged in political economy himself, but he didn't, to my eye, really get engaged in the issues we talked about tonight, although he'll enlighten us in a moment. But I figure that was an act of great kindness, because it means for people like me who came after a marcher, we had something to do. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. That was absolutely brilliant. Uh, I'm going to give the first go at commenting to our honored guest, Amartya Sen. And then we will open the floor to comments and questions from, uh, okay. from the floor. Well, that was unsurprising in the sense that it was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't have expected anything else from Tim. I've been very privileged to have known uh, Tim from his student days. And... Uh, uh, there are two ways of dealing with problems uh, that bother you. One is to try to do something, and the other is to get a brilliant student to do something. <laughs> <laughs> I always prefer the latter. <laughs> and this is a very good example <laughs> of how productive it can be. I uh, take this opportunity also of joining the director in the in uh, in expressing appreciation of the Atlantic Foundation because you know this is this is the institution with which I'm being associated for really incredible number of years like 45, 50 years or 40 years I guess and uh, to and uh, there's a renewed interest in inequality which had wavered in, in, in LSE. There were some people interested, Harold Lasky was, others were not interested. And uh, I think it's very nice to uh, have an institution that is concerned really with that. Now, I won't comment on uh, at, uh, Tim's really masterly presentation of the issues involved in, in effective uh, effective state and effective public action, but I make a couple of comments. Uh, they're not necessarily very profound comments. Uh, I think Tim made a very difficult point on the elections, namely what may be the problems of election. But I think it's quite important to recognize that election and democracy has been viewed in two ways. One is in terms of voting, and the other is in terms of public discussion. And what I think Tim was saying, and what some of us uh, have felt um, uh, in a way that Tim expressed, is that quite often the, the discussion aspects tend to get neglected. Now, historically, it so happens that if you look at the, the origin of it, Athens and ancient Greece, 
has both a voting system and a public discussion system. Uh, public discussion isn't always very easy because we can't communicate, and as we know from uh, what was said about Brexit and what happened, uh, that there could be an enormous difference between what is being described and the object that is being described. Um, sometimes the complexity is admired. I remember one occasion, I think shortly after a period of teaching here when I went back to Delhi, I was giving a lecture and one of the persons from the audience came up and he said, uh, oh, Professor Sen, that was a that was a brilliant lecture. So I said, well, I'm delighted that you liked it. Uh, and did you agree with most of the point? To which he said, no, I couldn't follow any of the point. <laughs> but I was admiring the complexity of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> so there's sometimes complexity can take you some considerable distance. But I think clarity is really ultimately, in my judgment, the central issue in, in democracy. And uh, I think we are seeing that in the context here in Brexit. We are seeing in the context of the appeal of Donald Trump uh, going back home. We can, I can give examples of how non-clarity can sometimes help. Uh, the other thing, of course, is that um, when, we, when we hear someone, we may not quite easily understand what is being said. And I think uh, I take the liberty of, of uh, mentioning an old favorite story of mine. I have a sense that I might have told a story here once, and it's very important never to say the same story in the same room again. <laughs> Primarily because walls have years. And so you have to be careful. But I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm sure the audience and, is different what? this time. I'm sure it's a different audience. <laughs> a different audience, yeah. Um, it's about, it's connected with elections and politics, but it's about the spread of fascism in the, in the, in the 20s when uh, people are going around having public discourse about why the fascists are doing really good things, like eliminating malaria and trains running on time and so on. And this is a, a fascist propaganda, a fascist converter electioneer who is uh, asking a, a, an Italian villager, uh, you have to join the fascist party. And he said, well, I can't join the fascist party. Uh, what's the reason? And he said, well, because, you see, my dad was a socialist, and my grandfather was a socialist. It's impossible for me to join the fascist party. Goes against my tradition. To which the fascist recruiter said, "What kind of a silly argument is that? Just because your granddad and granddad was, what would you have done if your father was a murderer and grandfather was a murderer?" To which the Italian villager says, well, in that case, of course, I would have joined the fascist party. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, 
the fact that that's being discussed may not have been clear to the recruiter. So communication is a, is a difficult thing. I'll make one half a point quickly. Reciprocity, on which you spoke, then, which is very important. Uh, I think there is a... Sometimes I'd like to chat with you. There are two ways of approaching our relation with each other. One is that of reciprocity. Uh, this is really where the social contract approach comes in. You do something for me, I do something. It's Rousseau, it's Locke, it's, uh, it's to some extent Kant, or Kant has many other things too. But then there is also something where you don't regard reciprocity to be important. I think the strongest intellectual argument you find on that is probably in Gautam Buddha. It's, it's very hard to understand in, in England because it's not pronounced Buddha, but Buddha or something like that. But Gautam Buddha, Sutta Nipata, where he discusses that most things that are worth doing are worth doing not because you expect anything back from it. And there's no reciprocity. I mean, it's a thought that's appeared again and again. For example, in Luke, when Jesus is arguing with a lawyer and tells him the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, the argument is that the Samaritan, I mean, uh, the lawyer has said, your duty is to uh, your neighbor. And Jesus says, who is your neighbor? Let me tell you a story. And then he says, that when the wounded man gets up, who would he think was his neighbor? And the lawyer has to admit that he would think that the Samaritan was his neighbor who came from uh, many miles away. And, and there's clearly the Samaritan is going to be there and going away. There's no reciprocity there. And I think the humanity has benefited from both reciprocally just reasoning as well as completely unreciprocal uh, 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 reasoning, which we do because, as Buddha answers the question very well, think, why do you do it? And he said, well, isn't there a problem here? You're saying that what would make you do a good thing? But if you recognize it as a good thing, isn't that a reason for doing it? Why do you need any further reason? If it is good, then obviously by your own admission, it's good. <laughs> and I think... So I think the, uh, the basis of the um, effective state uh, admits of a certain amount of plurality, which I think uh, Tim accepts. I saw just thanking him for what I agree with the director was an absolutely brilliant talk. Uh, and uh, I, there are things that um, it's always wonderful to argue, and, <laughs> and we may continue the argument sometime, but it's really was extraordinarily good. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Amartya. Let me open the floor to the audience, uh, and I'll take questions in batches, if I may. Uh, let's start with the woman here, and then I'll take the gentleman here, and the woman in the back there. Yes. 
Thank you so much you for your lecture. Just introduce yourself and uh, and then ask a question. My name is Shivani and I'm a student of social policy here at the LSC. And um, my question is, it actually draws from uh, Professor Sen's comments. Um, India is going uh, to general elections right now in two months. We have a parliamentary elections coming up. And my question is that how do you make... Um, issues like education, the environment, gender equality, a part of the national discourse when you have people who are more concerned with jobs, perhaps, or religious ideologies. So how does that become a talking point? Okay, thank you. Uh, gentlemen, here, I think they're recording, so it would be wonderful if you could. Hello, yes, my name is Raj Bansali. I am an alumnus of LSE in statistics, though. Uh, my question is... Uh, directed about what you said, the role of religion in establishing the norms that you mentioned, I think you were completely, well, rather quiet on that, and potential clash that can create when, say, a new religion in a country can clash with an establishment and so establish values, and what we see now, the so-called Islamophobia, is an example of that. Okay, thank you. Uh, the woman back there, and then I'll come to Tim. Um, my name is Preeti Udas. Uh, Professor Sain, you mentioned something very relevant. Uh, there is reciprocity, but also we should be able to do deeds which do not always demand reciprocity. But this is very hard to implement. I was wondering if you would have some tips or guidance for those of us who want to move towards that path but are always calculating what is in it for me. <laughs> okay. Tim, would you like to start? Yeah, so let me, uh, let me start with the question of religion. I mean, I think I didn't mention religion. It's a complex issue in relation to these issues. Um, uh, uh, for those of you who have not read it, I strongly recommend reading Larry Ziedentop's book, the Inventing the Individual, which is a, an account of how, if you look at the development of um, Western liberalism, a lot of it was rooted in changing attitudes within religion that encouraged a certain notion of tolerance and openness that was a kind of precursor in terms of generating norms and values of the kind I'm talking about. Um, so I think religion can play a role, but equally it can play a role of the, of the other kind in enforcing hierarchical structures uh, and uh, emphasizing things which are often in tension with um, uh, the kinds of values that I think are needed to build an inclusive and effective uh, state. So there's no simple story to tell uh, about the impact of religion, and that comes out when people have looked at the evidence. I mean, is it the case that uh, either in attitudinal data there are very strong correlations between people's attitudes to democracy and religion, and the answer appears to be very mixed, if non-existent? And equally, if you look at places in the world where certain kinds of democratic institutions have taken root, people have tried to tell stories that that's intimately related to religion, but found it very hard to find any robust and uh, uh, sustained evidence on that. So I, and I, I think it bears out my point that there are things that obviously we inherit cultural uh, institutions of which religion is an important part and plays an, a key role in the kinds of values and norms that we have in society, but I don't think there's any kind of determinism in that relationship that means that things have to go in a particular way uh, on a deterministic path. On the, issues of, on the issue of what can create a state that um, is focused on uh, broader issues than, than, than just the narrow interests uh, 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 that, that was described, getting states to focus on issues of 
of, of, of the common good in elections, I think is, is one of the, the real challenges. We know what gives you the kind of best odds of that. It's having a free media, I think, plays a very key role in scrutinizing the policy platforms of uh, during elections and trying to push the debate back towards the kinds of issues that are going to appeal to a wide section of the population. Uh, it's having the incentives to build broad-based coalitions. Now, there's a lot of debate, and, and I won't have time to sort of go into this in detail, between whether, for example, plurality rule systems versus more proportional uh, representation systems give in better incentives. Um, it can cut both ways. I mean, what plurality rule gives you is the best incentive to create very broad coalitions because you need to garner something close to 50% of the support in a country to get elected and to win an election. So that looks like a force to stretch coalitions rather than to narrow them compared to proportional systems. But proportional systems allow a much ba wider basis of representation, smaller groupings to enter. So there are lots of issues out there about whether you can engineer this through electoral systems. But I think the, the, if you look at the evidence, and actually Amartya in his work on famines uh, really highlighted that, but it's a much wider issue than just in relation to famines, that, that having free media and free debate, uh, I think, is, is an important dimension of what creates an effective system. It doesn't, there's no surefire guarantee that you can keep it on broad-based issues, but these are the kinds of things that I think have the best odds of doing that, at least. Amartya, how can we be good for its own sake? <laughs> I think that was the question. <laughs> I think if you recognize uh, something to be good, uh, you obviously have to ask the question, is it good because it does do something? Uh, or is it good because it could be recognized to be uh, good? <laughs> and I think there's no way we would escape the fact that uh, we will encounter uh, objects which are good in one sense or the other, or both senses. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a little similar to the problem of inequality, in fact, because inequality you may regard to be bad for its own sake, because some people have opportunities that others don't, some people have privileges that others don't, and you may think it's bad. And yet, you know that inequality, we know from the work of Michael Marmot and others, uh, also creates a world where health conditions are worse, and general well-being is worse, not just to the extent that some people are worse off than others, but it vitiates the aspects of being sat upon. I mean, this famous study of Michael Marmot was that of Whitehall, and where people who are in low-level work, they end up having a much lower life expectancy, much higher morbidity and illness, and that's, uh, and, and the reasoning isn't that uh, being poor itself is an illness like cancer. It's just that being poor encourages you to do things like excessive drinking, excessive um, uh, smoking or eating and so on. And so there's a connection there. So I think uh, I appreciate the question very much. Because we have to distinguish between these two types of uh, goodness, intrinsic goodness and instrumental goodness. But I think it would be a mistake 
to ignore either of them. So thank you for drawing attention to both of them. That doesn't answer the question. (laughs) (laughs) There's some very good work being done by Nava Ashraf and Oriana Bandera at at, at ALSE on what they call altruistic capital, which with empirical work to support it, which I think goes some way to answering your question. And of course, things like the Atlantic Foundation, I think, are a very good example. Who uh, who uh, do not? Uh, I had to ask their permission to mention their name this evening. They were uh, reluctant to get credit for their generosity. So that's a good example. Uh, let me go back to the floor. Okay, we've got lots. Uh, I'll take this gentleman here, the woman here, and then maybe the woman way in the back. Hi, um, I'm Max from the LSE Inequalities Institute. Quick question to Professor Besley on the point about the time it takes to develop good institutions in order to eventually turn a fragile state into a successful state. Um, so I'm coming from Ukraine, and we are seeing that in post-Soviet countries we struggle with transforming our institutions because they have a, a Soviet past that is, uh, as outlined in Ajimolu and Robinson's book, is not the best way to do life, really. Um, so just just quick question on countries like Estonia and Georgia actually very quickly through reforms and through very, very radical reforms turn their institutions around in a very short amount of time. And in Georgia, you've seen a backlash now to the old Soviet ways. So does that go, does that in a sense prove your point that true institutional transformation takes a long time or can it be done quickly through radical reforms? Okay. I think the woman right here. Barbara Veronese was a student uh, of Tim Beasley and in a way also Variana Bandiera. Um, I'm very interested in what we can do to defend liberalism and how to ignite uh, you know, the protection of what has been achieved so far and not just by political uh, economy scientists. So I wonder if part of the issue is inequality, uh, gaining uh, gain space even in Western economies and whether we can solve the problem bottom-up by reducing inequality again, or whether it's a question of parties who are the main political agents in the public discourse and whether bottom-down parties should change. Should we have front-facing people that look less elitarian, less educated, and so you reconnect them, or what can be done in a practical way? Okay, thank you. And the woman way, way in the back row. Hi, my name is Emma. I'm a graduate student with the International History Department here in LSE. Um, my question is sort of related to the lady uh, ahead of me in terms of liberal ideas and state effectiveness. And we discussed, um, for Sabiz, you discussed that state effectiveness in the past two centuries have been um, increasing. But yet um, the latest Oxfam reports on inequality and poverty is stating that inequality has been increasing, particularly in um, uh, recent decades. Um, where there's been an increasing trend of it. And also, um, I've been reading recently about IMF publishing a report on inequality and drawing um, relations to neoliberalism. So my question to you both would be what your opinions are on the concept of neoliberalism and whether you agree with the IMF's finding that neoliberalism, particularly policies on austerity and um, capital um, being able to go across borders, um, contributing to 
inequality in the world. And if you do agree with the findings that uh, neoliberalism is uh, driving increasing inequalities, what would be some suggestions you would have in terms of economic tools that can be used to decrease this inequality? Thank you. Tim. Okay, uh, so, so some, some big issues here. I want, I want Amartya to defend liberalism in a moment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and let me, let me just uh, mention a word or two on, on, on the general uh, themes that have been, been raised, and in particular, let me begin with the question about the speed of transition. I don't think there's a simple answer to that, but um, one thing we do know, and this is something in a paper I um, was just about to come out in the American Economic Review with Torsten Pearson, we look at how long-lived are um, historical attitudes using something called the World Values Survey. One thing that comes out very clearly, if you look at democratic values, people who were brought up under authoritarian regimes, particularly in uh, the Soviet bloc or or even in in colonial regimes, tend to have much weaker detachments to democracy, suggesting that the experience with democracy does have some effect on people's long-lived values. So it may be you need a period of time where more people get exposed to and experience democratic institutions. That's what the people like Seymour Martin Lipset, who's probably the most famous version of this, argue there are preconditions for effective democracy which involve transformation in liberal values. To say it's not that they have to proceed, but they have to work, work in step with those changes. But the, ev- the evidence appears to be, such as you can glean it from World Values Survey, that some of these attitudes that you, you get, in, particularly when, in your youth, it comes back to my point I started with, a lot of the things we acquire and values we acquire in our youth become our values for life. It does look like people exposed. So we look particularly at people who lived in authoritarian regimes between the ages of 19 and 30, um, appeared to have more authoritarian views themselves, having experienced those regimes. So this suggests that the dynamics are quite sticky when you look in the data. Um, it doesn't resolve all of the issues you're talking about, but, but, but I think it, it, it tells you that, 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 therefore, you can change institutions instantaneously, but that's not going to give you that automatic transformation. There's a slow, progressive process of institutional change and the risk of institutional reversals, which we are seeing and have seen in some, some countries in, East, in Eastern Europe. The bigger issue of inequality, I, I did, deliberately didn't get into that in the lecture. That would be a lecture in its own, uh, own, own, own right. I think um, one, th- let me say a couple of things on that. Um, I, I, about five years ago, I was asked to give a talk in Latin America. I'm not an expert on Latin America, but I thought before I gave it, well, I'll pull out some of the standard data I look at, effective states, and I, and I colored the dots, and I did a kind of... Um, uh, a picture of the world, and I put, colored the dots for all the Latin American countries. And I did a sort of, uh, looked at the relationship, you'll have to envisage this, between state effectiveness and GDP per capita. And one thing that was very noticeable was Latin America is right below the, the, the regression line. It's, it, it's a, essentially a negative outlier in state effectiveness. And one of the hypotheses when I presented, I didn't, I didn't push this because there were plenty of people there to take up the point because when people think about Latin America and what makes state development very distinctive it is um, the the underlying inequalities in Latin American societies that often do filter through into the way the states operate creating more less inclusive and more clientelistic types of states and that seems to if you believe what the evidence very casual evidence suggests has been an impediment to the development of many of these aspects of state effectiveness. That doesn't mean those states haven't performed 
better than, say, some of the really fragile states in the world they have. But there seems to be quite a strong relationship. And then when you unpack that and you look at inequality and other things, there is, at least in the data, quite strong correlations. Of course, correlations don't imply causation. In terms of recent inequalities, but these are long-lived inequalities, so coming to the question at the back, these are not short-lived inequalities. These are inherent structural inequalities that are hard-baked into the way those societies were created from historical forces. Uh, and and I, I say without um, any question that those things, I think, are strongly related both in, uh, from at least a conceptual point of view to some of the issues I've been talking about. Whether a short run, some of the shorter-run trends we've seen are more inherently going to be related to this, I don't know. For me, a bigger fear, I mean, inequality is a big issue, but polarization, which is a more form of, his, uh, of horizontal rather than vertical differentiation, is in many countries a bigger issue than vertical inequalities. I'm not saying they're not important, but the kinds of polarization that's now taking place between populations, immigrants versus um, native populations, those things seem to me to be a much deeper and immediate threat to some of what I'm describing rather than um, just economic inequality. And, and the other issue, and this has been written about by political scientists in the mid-1990s, is that traditional left-right politics rooted in economic inequality seems to be on the wane. Um, that in general people don't identify as strongly with their income type as they do with other forms of identity. And so there's been a sort of shrinkage of the space in left-right politics, which has been taken over by authoritarian versus liberalism as a different dimension in politics. And Herbert Kitchell, who for some of, may have read some of his work, um, argued this in the mid-1990s, that there was this transformation so that it wasn't, about class and in, it wasn't about class and income anymore. It was about authoritarianism versus liberalism. And I think we've seen that trend continue. And many of the recent developments I talked about at the end are really manifestations of what he was already describing going on. Um, so it's, it's very simplistic to think of politics always in income polarization terms. There are many other important cleavages in politics, which I think are in some places far more powerful. Marta, liberalism. <laughs> I think uh, Tim gave indirectly the answer to that question also. Um, I, don't, you know, I think there's a reason to distinguish between liberalism and liberal values. Uh, liberal values are a component of many approaches which are not liberalism. I mean, Marxism in its original form had a lot of liberal values in it. That's quite clear whether you look at the 1844 manuscripts or the critique of Gotha Fogum or, or German uh, ideology and so on. Uh, and similarly, you can think of um, something which is described as liberalism. It may not have well, that's less common, uh, liberal values at all. I mean, liberal values, come, I mean, just to give an example, uh, at the time of the height of the uh, communist rule in the 60s, I remember listening to a story told by Khrushchev. He discusses a problem that he faced. Namely, he went to a school and he asked the children a simple question to find out their general knowledge, saying, who wrote War and Peace? And one of the children 
got up and I said, believe me, Comrade Khrushchev, I did not write it. (laughs) (laughs) And Khrushchev said he was very upset, so he called the Secret Service head, and he said, you know, you've made the country so terrorized, liberal values are gone completely. We can't tolerate a system like that. I asked who wrote the Island Fees, and this chap, this young boy says, he didn't write it. This cannot go on. And, uh, and the Secret Service chap said, no, I fully understand. We are making an, making an error, fundamental error, which we are going to correct. And uh, Khrushchev tells, ends by saying that a week later he came back and he said, Comrade Khrushchev, you need not have any fear any longer because the child has now confessed. (laughs) 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 So I think the... It may not be against communism, but against liberal values. It is a part of the Marxian political philosophy, I would say it is. And if it is ignored as the Secret Service clearly here is ignoring, is that a violation of something foundational? I'll say yes. So I think I wouldn't go to asking what is liberalism, but what are liberal values, what are its role in different contexts. And the context could be very widespread indeed. Okay. I think we have time for one last round of questions. I'll take the gentleman there. Uh, the gentleman here, and I'll take the woman here. You can start with her because you're nearby. The woman right there in the green shirt, I think. And then there were... Hello there. Um, Thank you very much for your lecture. It was extremely interesting. Um, I was wondering is the question actually I've uh, um, been asking myself for quite a long time now. Um, Considering that there have been so many um, significant critiques of the homo economicus and uh, of the assumption of uh, rationality and self-interest as the only motivators for human action, why in many, uh, you know, economic faculties and classes, including at this institution, um, and not only in economics, are these assumptions still thought as valid and the models based on this institution, on this assumption, um, still not challenged, I think, as much as they should be? Um, and what do you think can be done to include these insights into um, economics and, you know, all the other subjects that um, derive from them to yeah, kind of include more common sense uh, into their vision of the human beings. Thank you very much. Very good. Uh, uh, oh, no, thank I have the one behind, but it's okay. okay. We, we'll squeeze both of you in if you're very short, if okay. you're very brief. Uh, thank you very much. I'm uh, Jonathan, studying economics here at the LSE, and uh, I found it very interesting that you talked uh, uh, so basically about 1.1 threat, which is polarization. And I think there might be another very big threat to our liberal systems, uh, which is the Chinese system, a system that's considered to be very effective in many ways, but it's not an, exclu- uh, not an inclusive or cohesive political system. And um, do you think we can imagine an effective social contract uh, without, inc- uh, without inclusive institutions that is sustainable, and what would be the consequences for our political systems? Okay, thank you. And the, the grey sweatshirt in the behind, yes, exactly. 
Uh, hi, uh, I'm a student from philosophy, uh, philosophy department. So I have a question about uh, self-interest. So in economics, it seems like we love self-interest. We like uh, from Adam Smith, we embrace and rely on self-interest to do, to do a lot of things. But in politics, we hate it. It's like we have all the checks and balance try to contain this self-interest. So what's your opinion or response to this seemingly contradiction? Yeah, thank you. Okay, and there was one, oh yes, this gentleman here. The blue shirt in the middle, yeah. Um, I'm Abhinav from the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex. Um, my question is regarding uh, the role of multidimensional inequalities um, in the sense that if I just give a small example of a woman uh, living in a rural area and being part of the so-called lower caste in um, one of the rural areas in India, and um, what this makes me feel is that she's bound to have lower political voice as well. So in terms of this intersection of inequalities in terms of being women uh, and living in a rural area, there's this intersection of social, cultural, and in terms, I would say, spatial inequalities. So how do we move towards a society that helps in tackling these intersection of inequalities which eventually affect political voice as well? Okay, thank you. Tim. Okay, I would say one or two things and then leave the last word to Amartya on. Um, whether economists always teach homo economicus and self-interest, come and take my EC201 <laughs> micro-principles, <laughs> and you won't think that anymore. Uh, I do quite extensively discuss that. But I, to give you a slightly less frivolous answer, um, the, in some contexts, it's a natural set of assumptions to make about what people are engaged in. So I, actually, today's lecture that I gave in... Um, in my EC201 class was about the use of incentives in economics because it's often a misused topic because people um, naturally think, well, if everyone's self-interested, self all we need to do is to pay them to do something and they'll do it. But, of course, that's a very uh, narrow and unrealistic view of all, all human motivation. Um, and so uh, in, in, in that context, you need to have a kind of broader appreciation beyond uh, self-interest uh, to understand how the world works, and you just simply get it wrong. But my colleagues, actually, Oriana Bangera's name came up, again, uh, came up again in the lecture. They did this interesting work on fruit pickers. And, you know, so they asked the question, and they did this with a randomized controlled trial, do fruit pickers respond to incentives? And I think the fair assumption is if you're picking fruit, it's a back-breaking kind of labor. And you probably are going to respond like rational economic person in response to incentives. In other parts of life, it's a very poor characterization of how people are likely to behave. So I think it's not unuseful in some contexts to begin with it, but it's a real mistake to extend it. Now, it's interesting in the context of political science. So sort of at the foundations of political economy, um, James Buchanan, who I'm watching you well as well, asserted that it was economists' duty to introduce rational economic man, I suppose, as it's, it's normally referred to, into political science, precisely because political scientists were too naive. They weren't <laughs> thinking about things in that way, and they were making all sorts of errors. And actually, rational choice politics, as it's sometimes called, then kind of took off on the back of that. And what's interesting has been a sort of more recent convergence because where was political science coming from? It was coming from a very behavioralist perspective. It was thinking almost not at all about the things economists think about, which are incentives and uh, 
uh, and why people do things because they're incentivized to do them or they behave in a self-interested or strategic way. And, uh, and that displaced for a while in some quarters among political scientists what you might call a purely behavioralist view. People vote for parties because they identify with parties, not because it's in their interest to vote for party A or party B. But there's been a, quite recently a, a, quite a big convergence of perspective, I think, in, inspired by what's been going on in economics, which is a kind of behavioral uh, counter-revolution with economics, taking much wider notions of motivation seriously. And I think we're meeting somewhere in the middle between the old-fashioned behavioralism, which I think was way too naive in its own way, and a very stylized form of rational self-interest modeling, and kind of getting to a much more balanced and nuanced picture. And as people like Amacha with his, with his critique, I think that was part of that um, uh, um, uh, and powerful um, uh, um, persuasion for economists to take this thing up. Asking about China this late in the evening and where it fits into the story is uh, something I can't possibly address. <laughs> I am tempted to do that old academic thing. Say, I, so, so Bob Putnam, I don't know if you know his work, has a famous book called Making Democracy Work, which actually is very in sync with some of the themes about the need to build a strong civil society alongside democratic institutions. And about 10 years ago, slightly tongue-in-cheek, I wrote a paper called Making Autocracy Work, um, which was about why all autocracies in the world didn't seem to conform to prediction that um, they were highly unsuccessful, that we do have many examples in human history of successful autocracies, and we need to understand why. A couple of things come out of that, and, I'll, and I will hand over to Amartya. One, one important thing that comes out of that, what very striking finding is that autocracies are at both ends of the distribution. There are some very striking examples of the early days of Singapore or Korea or Taiwan, of, and now of China, of successful autocracy. It's something we have to account for, and I develop in that paper a kind of an account of what I thought was going on to make autocracy successful in those contexts. But equally, if you look at the bottom of the distribution, it's almost entirely populated by autocracy as well. So you're kind of exposing yourself to a real risk. And you can look at that in all sorts of dimensions, economic dimensions, social dimensions, whatever way you look at it, you get that twin tails phenomenon. Um, so even though it could be true that for a while you can operate effectively with autocratic institutions, the evidence appears to be that you're exposing yourself to an enormous amount of risk, particular shocks that will, uh, will, will, will cause great difficulties for societies that are organized in that way. And that I think democracy is a much more robust form of institution. It builds those kind of fail-safes, which are often just missing from autocratic systems. But that's a much richer set of issues than I was able to get into this evening. Well, I don't know that I have anything great to add to that. That was, I very much agree with what you said. But um, let me take this opportunity since I'm at LSE to um, draw attention to one of the, the works of one of the great products of LSE, namely Ambedkar, who was a uh, uh, a great student here, and who was one of the architects of the Indian Constitution, and he also reflected on many subjects, including democracy and 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 effectiveness of states. It's somewhat similar to, uh, I mean, not the same conclusion, but same similar question. And the uh, uh, one of the things that he discusses shortly after the Constitution is made is to say that we have to, and it's related to, I think, the third question, that um, 
we have to recognize the uh, peculiarity and indeed the wonder of the fact that the India has now accepted political equality at a level, everyone having the same vote, and the elections are just coming, and everyone's wooing, wooing each other to, to get their vote, and yet tolerating enormous economic inequality, and ask the question, how is it possible that in one sphere we have turned more, so much more egalitarian than others? So I think the question that you're being asked is, uh, is um, a very central one, and, uh, and they, I, I'm not sure, I mean, uh, Tim discussed, among other things, that question. Sometimes uh, complicated problems have very simple answers, and since uh, I've been uh, trying to discuss uh, some examples of that, uh, let me end up by saying that one of the complex problems I found a very simple answer was when I was, uh, I think I was visiting Hanover for a conference, and uh, and uh, I uh, I was after the con there was a conference. I found that I was going home, and uh, I stood at a street crossing with a red light on, but. Absolutely nobody in sight anywhere. And do I cross it or not? And I told myself that this is being damn stupid. Uh, and uh, true to my heritage of countries I've known, like, like India, and oddly enough, China and Britain, you ought to cross. I did. And the child on the other side said, Professor Sen, in Germany, you have to wait until the term light turns green. So I was very pleased that I was so famous. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, oh. But I, I had to be, of course, um, uh, affable. So I said, well, where did we meet last? And to which this chap said, we have never met, but you're wearing your conference badge. <laughs> Because sometimes complex problems have very simple answers. <laughs> okay, well, let me just close by first thanking Tim for a wonderful talk that drew on Amartya Sen's work but also took it further and made it relevant to many issues of today. And thank you to Amartya for, um, for a lifetime of work that has enriched all of our lives.